up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Chapter 2, actually. We went through chapter 1. We do verse-by-verse teaching. So after chapter 1 comes what? Chapter 2. So we'll be in chapter 2. We'll start at the top of the chapter. Incredible study. And I know that the Lord wants to bless us this morning. We have discovered in this epistle that there are those who are on the scene here at the Church of Colossae, and they were troubling the Christians with their false teachings. So what we have seen thus far in this letter that Paul the Apostle wrote uh, to them, that this letter deals with truth, establishing in in truth once again, because there are those coming in called the Gnostics. Gnostics means uh, Gnosticism to know, and they claim to have this special, unique revelation and knowledge of God that was completely false. So chapter 1, we took our time looking at over the last several weeks, and we saw that the apostle writes about the supremacy and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. So let's pray uh, for our study this morning, and, and then we'll get into it. As Lord, we do ask that you would touch our hearts with your truth. Stir our hearts. Uh, we want to be ones that we learn these truths, but what does it mean for us? How do we apply it in our lives? And so we ask that you would just touch our hearts with the teaching of your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we have learned in chapter 1 that Jesus is the express image of God. In other words, he is the creator. All things in heaven and on earth were created by him and for him, and in him all things consist. So he has preeminence over everything. He is the firstborn from the dead. He's the head of the body, the church. It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And then we concluded chapter 1 last week with the apostle writing about his service to the church, to the Christians. He writes that I rejoice in my sufferings for you. And keep in mind that as Paul is writing this epistle, he's chained to a Roman guard. He's in his first imprisonment in Rome, and he is writing to them these truths that are preserved for all eternity because it's the written word of God, the inspired word of God. He writes, I am a minister, that is a servant by God, to give you the fullness of his word and a mystery revealed, that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we discussed last week, what does that mean for you and for me, that Christ dwells in our hearts? It means that he not only tells us what to do, but he gives us the strength to do it. He enables us to live a life for him. And we're going to see in this chapter coming up that there's a very important emphasis here, and that is, as we have seen the sufficiency of Christ, the, the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, that in him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we want to take that to heart and, and make sure that we understand that in all wisdom and knowledge concerning Christ, we go to the word of God, we go to him, and God works in us, as Paul writes his word, uh, mightily, and then it works in us maturity. And now as Paul continues writing this letter, remember it's for us as well, that the apostles is sharing his heart. We're going to only look at the first three verses here this morning how he desires to see them grow in their love and knowledge of Christ and and love for each other, to be established and remain established in truth. And that truth isn't found in the philosophy of the world. It's not found in traditions of men. It's not found in legalism taking on the appearance of being religious, and it's not found in carnality. But rather, it is found in Christ. So let's continue. Let's consider together what the Lord might say to us this morning 
through his word as we read in chapter 2, verse 1 of the book of Colossians. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So Paul's love and concern for the Christians was not limited to those who he met personally. And this verse indicates to us what I have discussed previously and what we have seen, that Paul, it is believed by church historians that he had never been to Colossae. Uh, a, a lot of Christians he did know there, but a lot of them he did know them personally. He had not uh, been to Colossae. He had not been to Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was a short distance there in Lucas Valley, about 100 miles east of Ephesus is where Colossae was, Areopolis, and where Laodicea uh, was located. So we see that Paul here, he writes a letter to the church at Laodicea. We do not have that letter here in the canon of Scripture as Paul's writing this in about 62 A.D. It would be over 30 years later that Jesus wrote the church at Laodicea letter. And you might recall the seven letters to the seven churches, those seven churches in Proconsular Asia, the end of the first century, the last church, the church of Laodicea. And Jesus says to them that you guys are lukewarm. And so it's a study for another time, but he had a concern for them, and, and we certainly understand as the false teachers were there. But the church probably, Colossae, Laodicea, those in Proconsular Asia like Thyatira, Sardis, um, Pergamus, all the other churches that are listed in chapters 2 and 3 were probably established by disciples as they were saved in Ephesus. Acts chapter 19, we know that Paul, he's in the city of Ephesus. He makes it his base of operation. During that time, uh, the city is given over to the gospel. People are getting saved. And we also know that he would teach for two years at a school, the school of Tyrannus. He would disciple those who were getting saved. They would then fan out, and they would establish those churches in Colossae and Laodicea being one of them. And Epaphras, who probably or could have established the church of Colossae, he would travel across Asia Minor over to Rome to give Paul this report of what was going on. And Paul writing to them now this letter, he says, as I can uh, write this, he says, I, I, I haven't met you, but I have a concern for you. And as we consider this, as we consider this together, what we just read in verse 1, I learned from Paul because he had such a shepherd's heart. He says, even though I haven't met you, I do have a great conflict for you. And the word conflict means to agonize. He had a deep, deep concern for them. He did not have the mindset of, well, I didn't establish the church of Colossae or Laodicea, so I'm not concerned about you guys. I don't know the people there. Uh, I don't care what happens to you. But Paul would take the time, even in his imprisonment, to write to them and express this concern, this conflict that he had for them. And that teaches me something. You see, as a minister, as a servant of the Lord, I am to be concerned for Christians in this community, in Weld County, others that I know uh, throughout the world. I'm not to have the mindset of, well, I don't know them. I don't care if they're not doing well. It's not my problem. It's not my concern. But I am to be one that I desire to have Christians that I know and those that I don't know, churches and ministries, that they're doing well in the things of the Lord. I don't want to have a negative attitude towards others. And I'll be honest with you, when we first started the church years ago, almost 28 years ago, 
when we first started, I thought we're going to be the best church. We're going to be the most popular church. We're going to be the, the, you know, the together church. That's going to be Calvary Chapel. And I had a mindset at times that I would look down on other churches in ministries. And I have learned as the Lord has ministered to me and grown me that I'm to be concerned for other churches, other ministries and Christians in our community. And, and even though I may not know them, I may not know exactly what's going on. I pray that they're doing well in the things of the Lord. And as Paul here is writing to this church, he is expressing that concern for them. I pray that for we here at Calvary Chapel, that we would have a concern for the kingdom of God as a whole. That we would be ones that we desire for churches to do well, to be faithful to the gospel and to the word of God. And as I consider other ministries that are in Greeley or Weld County and other churches, I rejoice in what God is doing in those ministries. We can't minister to everyone here in Greeley. I can't and we can't meet all the needs of the Christians. So I do pray for healthy churches, healthy ministries, that those who are standing firm on the gospel, that they be a light as well because we really need each other, especially in the days in which we are in. So Paul is expressing this conflict for you. I agonize for you. I'm concerned about you because he had a heart for them. And you will find that to be true with your own life. To people around you and the people of our community, as you have a heart for them, then you'll be concerned for them. You'll have a desire to see them do well in the things of the Lord. And it really shows that, that you're beginning to have a servant's heart and you desire to see the kingdom of God go forward in our community. And so this spiritual conflict that he had for them, and, and he tells of what that conflict is in verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knitted together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 3, you might want to underline. My concern for you in Colossae and Laodicea is, first of all, number one, notice verse 2, that your hearts be encouraged. The apostle wanted to encourage them in the truth of the word and in the blessings that we have in Christ. He's already written in the previous chapter, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. He's delivered us from the power of darkness into his light. We're going to be presented before him holy and blameless, which is a glorious future for you and I that have faith in Jesus Christ and eternal hope that we have. He was always encouraging the saints. And Paul, he was encouraging them in their struggles and difficulties and standing for truth when the group of false teachers were coming into the church and how we need listen. We need today to encourage and strengthen one another in the days in which we are in. Because there are many voices that are out there. And there are many really convincing, persuasive voices, but they're false voices. They're pulling people away from the truth and even Christians away from the truth of God's word. And we see that there is more and more of an attack on truth today. There's a great pressure on all of us as Christians. You don't need to have me tell you this. You know it to be true. The pressure to compromise truth. To compromise what God's word has to say. To excuse it. Or it doesn't really mean that. That's not what God meant. 
And we need to encourage and strengthen each other to keep running our race, to fight the good fight. It is a battleground out there, isn't it? To stand for the Lord, but it is a battleground. It's a fight, but it's a good fight. To be that good soldier is some of the last words that Paul would write to Timothy. To not give up, to keep faithful to God and to keep serving God. To encourage one another, each other in the things of the Lord. To be one that encouragement is it brings strength to us and lifts us up. I think about Barnabas. Barnabas in the book of Acts. Barnabas, his name means the son of encouragement, the son of consolation. And that was his ministry. And when Paul, known as Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee of Pharisee, you begin to read about him in Acts chapter 8, how he caused havoc on the church. He's persecuting the Christians very heavily. And in chapter 9, he's going up to Damascus to persecute the Christians, to arrest them, bring them back to Jerusalem. And that's where he was converted. He met the Lord on the road. And he's converted. He's changed immediately. And it was others that said, it's this Saul, this Pharisee, this Saul of Tarsus, he got saved. We don't believe it. He persecuted the Christians very heavily. And so those up in Damascus were persecuting him. He would go to Jerusalem, and he would meet with the apostles. And the apostles are holding him out at arm's length and saying, we're not so sure about this. This guy persecuted the Christians very heavily here in Jerusalem. And Barnabas was one who came along and told Peter and John and the others, listen, his conversion is real. He's preaching Christ in the synagogues. You need to receive him. And what the apostles did is they put him on a boat and sent him off to Tarsus. And he was in Tarsus for about seven, eight years learning to make tents. And then when revival broke out in the book of Acts, when you move into chapter 13, there in Antioch of Syria, who was it that went and got Saul, known as Paul the Apostle? It, it was Barnabas. He said, hey, you come. You come and help us teach these Gentile believers. So that was the ministry of Barnabas. I look at him, and sometimes Barnabas gets a little bit criticized, or his ministry wasn't of importance. It was very important because he encouraged, even with John Mark, when, when Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13, that they left on their first missionary journey, John Mark went with them. It was the nephew of Barnabas. In the middle of that missionary journey, you read that John Mark left them. We don't know why he left. It could have been he got frightened. It could have been that he was still wrestling. He was a Jewish believer with all this grace and the doctrine of grace and Paul. And some have suggested that, but we don't know for sure. But whatever happened, it brought some tension between Paul and Barnabas. And when they set out on the second missionary journey, Barnabas said, I'm going to go get John Mark. And Paul said, no, you're not. He's not coming with us. He left last time. And Barnabas said, I want him to come. And Paul said, no. So Paul took Silas. He went his way on that second missionary journey, recorded in the book of Acts. Barnabas took John Mark under his wing and worked with him and discipled him. And it really ministered to John Mark. And it helped him because at the end of Paul's life, guess who Paul is asking for? He says, send John Mark to me. He's helpful to me. Sometimes we can be so harsh on each other. And I know for me, and I've said this more in the years of ministry, I need God's grace, but I need your grace as well at times. And we need to be gracious to each other and patient with each other and encourage each other and build each other up. We don't need to tear each other down. There's enough of that out there in the world. We don't need to come here and be torn down. There's so much 
judgment and being critical. That's our culture. And, and let's get my dig in. And I'm going to criticize you and, and all of this. No. Let's approve the things that are excellent, as Paul would write in Philippians chapter 1. My concern and agony for us here at Calvary Chapel is that we would continue encouraging each other because there will be difficulty and hardship for all of us in one way or another, to one degree or another, in the days and weeks and months ahead. And when those difficult days come and those hard weeks and hard season comes, we need to be here to encourage each other and build each other up. The second thing that Paul agonized for the Christians in Colossae is that second of all, that they would be knitted together in love. And as we encourage each other, may we be knitted together in God's love. There would be a oneness in the body of Christ. In other words, that we would really care for each other. And I know that our love isn't perfect. God's love is perfect. He's working that love in us. And I know that we can fall short of it. But it doesn't mean that we ignore it. And to ask the Lord, Lord, help me to love others and love those in the body of Christ. And Lord, work that love in my life. When it comes to my family, when it comes to others that are linked to me in my life, to the brethren in the church. And as we do, we're going to be knitted together in love. John, the apostle of love, would write in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In Paul's writings, as well as the apostle John, they emphasize that Jesus Christ was the perfect expression of both, listen, truth and love. They go together. You want to love others, you give them truth. Held in perfect balance. Paul here is saying, I'm going to be giving you the truth that is in Christ. He did that, particularly in chapter 1. So you can recognize the heresy of the Gnostics. I pray that you encourage one another, that you be knitted together in love. Now Paul, as he had a love for the saints, he noted the love that was in this church in chapter 1, in the opening greeting of this epistle to the Colossian believers. But his concern was is that love would continue because the Gnostics coming in, they were a threat to that. And the reason they were thought a threat is because they were not given truth. What was happening is they were causing confusion and division and was bringing strife. And I really believe that God has done a work here as we continue to move forward in truth. And I pray that it continues to grow. I pray that as people come here, that they come out of the discouragement of the world and come to be encouraged in truth. They come out of the, just the, the harshness of the world to come and see what love really is because that word love has been polluted in the world. That they come out of the darkness to come see the light of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be ones that that is our desire, that we're not known for how big we are or how the happening thing or how popular we are. I pray that as people talk about Calvary Chapel, that they would say that they love the Lord and they love others more than anything. Because if we're not desiring to grow in our love for Jesus Christ and love for one another, then we're missing it. Everything else, we're just missing out on what really is important of priority, encouraging one another, being knitted together. 
The third thing that Paul would have concern for them is number three, that you attaining to all the riches and the full assurance of understanding the mystery of God. That word full, to have full assurance, means to know for certain, to be completely convinced, to have total confidence. And there is a richness in having a full assurance, isn't there? There is, I know for me, as we understand these truths, to have a knowledge of the blessing that we have at Christ, the assurance of what Christ has done for us, you know, the, the, the benefits of, of uh, faith in Christ, of the word of God. There's a richness. We have hope, a living hope. We know for certain that, that we belong to him, that Christ dwells in our hearts. All these things of chapter 1 that we talked about in the work and person of Jesus Christ, it gives us assurance. And that's why we took our time understanding all of that in chapter 1. And you have confidence now in the deity and preeminence of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we have sufficiency as we go through chapter 2 in the word of Christ, in all wisdom and knowledge of Christ, in the word of God. And that is being diminished more and more in the church today. The church is bringing in more world philosophy and accepting culture and all of this. We have the written word of God given to you and to me, and I believe in its sufficiency for you and me as we're going to talk about that as it's a major theme here in this chapter. The mystery of Christ in you. Christ dwells in your heart as believers. Chapter 2, the word mystery here is referring to the character and person of God. And we can know the character and person of Jesus Christ as we study the word. We can have the certainty, the confidence of the riches that we have in being believers in Christ Jesus. Our position in Christ, salvation in Christ, confidence of who he is and what he has done for us. And the Gnostics were coming into the church and trying to get them to be confused and questioning and doubting concerning the truth of Christ. I read a little article that a, a, a lot of people they have found that end up joining cults or move into new age, you know, kind of ways and philosophies and Eastern mysticism and all that, a lot of those people were raised in a Christian church or said that they were. And that breaks my heart as I, I read that because it tells me that they were not established or confidence in the knowledge of God in Christ. And what will happen, and we see it today, of those who perhaps have a church upbringing or been a part of the church and it was never clearly taught to them and established with them the truth and knowledge concerning Jesus Christ his supremacy his the sufficiency of Christ it doesn't get any better than Christ we are being established in that truth here in chapter 2 once again that in him as verse 3 we read is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge it's not the philosophy of the world. It's not legalism. It's not carnality. It's not false visions. Those things that contradict truth. And as you and I are established in truth here of God's word, we're not going to be pulled away into deception and the persuasion of the world and that which is false. We will have a fullness in the full assurance and understanding and knowledge of God concerning Jesus Christ and who we are in Christ, and the riches and blessings we have in Christ. And Paul, as he says, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Mark that verse, remember it. And remember this, that knowledge is the apprehension of truth. Wisdom is the application of that knowledge in your life. There are those who have knowledge of God, the things of God, 
I've even met those that they, I remember one guy telling me, I could, I could quote, you know, circles around you, the Bible, I know it so well. But he lived as a fool because he didn't apply it in his life. They're not wise because they're not applying what they've learned from God's word in their life. It's just a lot of knowledge. And knowledge puffs up is what Paul writes in the book of Corinthians. Knowledge is prudent judgment and discernment. We need knowledge. But we need, along with that, wisdom is prudent action. And all the knowledge and wisdom that you and I need are in Christ. All the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are in him. Peter, in his last words to the church in 2 Peter chapter 1, he would write, His divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. So you believers in Laodicea, you in Colossae, all knowledge and wisdom pertaining to life and godliness is found in Christ, hidden in Christ, comes from Christ. It doesn't come from the Gnostics that are coming into the church with their persuasive you know, arguments. It's not found in the world's philosophy and ideas and traditions of men. Paul will say in a few verses, and verse 3 is a verse, again, that we need to take to heart. And people around us, they tell us, well, I'm searching for spiritual wisdom and knowledge. What's the key to life? What's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life? Have you ever, ever had anybody tell you, I'm a searcher of, uh, and a seeker of truth? Pilate said to, to Jesus in the trial, he said, what is truth? Well, Jesus had said a few hours before that, the night before, that I am the way, the truth, the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And anyone who is a seeker of truth, apart from Christ and the word of God, they're not going to find it. Because what we hold in our laps is the word of God that is truth. And Jesus is truth. I am the way, the truth. Not a truth. I am the truth. And the word of God telling us how we can have that abundant life that we so desire in others. How to be strong and wise when we need counsel, direction for life. How to have a successful marriage. How to raise your children in a dark world. And when you come to Christ and submit to Christ, all the wisdom and knowledge that pertains to godliness is found in Christ. It's found in the word of God. And we learn from him. We walk with him. And there's nothing else and there's nothing more. So why is this important? Because so many people are getting deceived into and pulled into things that are very, very foolish through the world's way and deception. And it sounds good. It's pleasing to the flesh. Very convincing. But our creator here this morning is saying to us, I have the true knowledge and wisdom that you need. And not only in life to live for him as we walk with him, Christ in us to give us the power to do that. But remember last week how I mentioned how Paul, when he was writing about his ministry, his service to the believers, he wrote in, in, in chapter 1 as he concluded, that I brought to you the fullness of the word of God. And I want to remind us once again to know the word of God in all knowledge and wisdom that goes together as we live for him, as we desire to experience that abundant life, to live in true wisdom. And the best way to be equipped, and I think all of us, I hope all of us would say, I want to be able to serve the Lord, to be able to give that to others. The best way to do that is to know and study the scriptures. So when the time comes that you have opportunity to give the word to that person in that situation, 
that you can do it. But there are those who desire to be used of the Lord, but they are not invested or disciplined in really studying the word so they can give it to others. Second Samuel 18. David's in the stronghold out in the wilderness. His son Absalom had usurped the throne, was going to kill his father. He had a lot of people, the men of Israel, behind him. David, he flees to the wilderness with the mighty men. There's a battle that ensues. And we know that Absalom ended up being killed in that battle. The men of Israel would flee. So Joab has to get word back to David that your son is dead. So he tells the Cushite, that's all the Bible says, the Cushite, that you run and tell David the news that his son is dead. But there was a young individual, as you read that chapter, Aimeaz. He said to Joab, let me go, let me go, let me go. And Joab said, you have no word to give. Let me go, let me go, let me go. And, he, and Joab said, get out of here. So the guy takes off, Aimeaz. He outruns the Cushite. He gets to David first. And David says, hey, what's the news? What's the news about my son Absalom? And, and Aimeaz says, well, there's a lot of noise. There was a big battle out there. A lot of commotion taking place. What happened to my son? Well, I don't know. David said, you stand aside. Stand over here. And then the Cushite came. What happened to my son? And he was able to give the word that your son has died. And I have known those who want to be used, but they're not ones who want to take in. To be ones that are disciplined to study and to say that, you know what, I have a word to give to you. Plenty that want to run, but they have no word to give. And don't be surprised if the king says, you need to wait here. Listen, I want to use you, but I want to prepare you. The last words of Paul, very quickly before we close, Paul the Apostle before his death in 2 Timothy chapter 4, let me read it to you. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching, for the time will come, not that the time might come. Listen, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itchy ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Timothy, and it's for us, you are to be like a representative, proclaiming the words of the king. Proclaim the word. You represent the king, that Jesus is Lord. He's the judge. He will usher in his kingdom. Stand your post. And it doesn't matter if people don't like it or they're offended by it. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. And we as Christians, we are to proclaim the word of God, and it will do a work in people's lives because you've heard me say this, and it is true because the Bible says it, that the word of God is alive. Proclaiming the word, which of course includes the gospel, should be the priority of every Christian that wants to minister to others, to every ministry, uh, for anyone who wants to be used of God in these days. It should be the priority of every church as we minister to your kids and your youth here. We are to proclaim the word, not to diminish it, not to excuse it, not to dismiss it, not to ignore it, not to be embarrassed by it. Or afraid that somebody's going to be offended by it. 
but to speak the truth in love. And sometimes I hear teachers that they teach, and they're kind of afraid to, to come out with it, to come out with the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. Spurgeon said this back in the 1800s, the word is like a line, just let it out and do what it's going to accomplish. Just proclaim, preach the word. This is my last charge to you, Timothy. We proclaim his word, not what is popular, not our own, not telling mostly stories. And anyone serving Christ should be speaking on his behalf. Timothy preached the word. Paul told the Ephesian elders, I have not neglected to do that. As he taught those young Christians for two years, six days a week, four hours a day, I wish I would have been there. It is the man or woman of God and the power of the Spirit of God proclaiming the Word of God and how we need the Word of God. We see all that's going on around us, how people are being taken captive by the deception of the world, the enemy. And Timothy, as you preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season. Stand your guard. Be at your post. Be on your watch. Proclaim the Word of the Lord in season, out of season. In other words, every opportunity, when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. And Timothy saw this in Paul's life because Paul preached in the temple courtyards, in the amphitheaters, on a stormy sea. We do it when culture is accepting and when culture is not accepting. When people are thankful and when they will curse you, and they will, in season and out of season. When you're feeling great and when you have a headache. When you're energized and when you're tired. And when you're excited and when you're frustrated, be at your post, your guard. You proclaim the word because the king is coming and he's going to judge the living and the dead. And in your readiness to give the word, give the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of Christ. And I say this brokenheartedly, but you see more and more in the church in America today, there are places everywhere, not all, but plenty that they won't talk about the deity of Christ. They don't give the gospel. They don't want to proclaim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through him. They certainly more and more don't want to talk about the rapture of the church, the coming kingdom of God. They don't want to mention sin and repentance. That is kind of a trend that you hear. Uh, We'll talk about mistakes, but we don't want to mention the word sin and repentance. They don't believe in hell, some of them. They don't believe that you have to be born again. And today's messages more are based on how good it makes me feel or to tell me how wonderful I am or the length of the sermon rather than the depth of the sermon. They want to hear how God can serve them and exalt them and promote them, not how, how can I die to self and serve in humility. And they are going to, if that continues, to crave things that are not truth and have itchy ears. And anyone who does not endure sound doctrine The itchy ears will come and they'll be given to fables. And the sad truth is this. When you have people that have itchy ears, there are too many teachers out there that are more than willing to scratch those ears. Calvary Chapel, remember this. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ, in the word of God. You give yourself to him and you give yourself to the word. So, Father, thank you. We thank you for this word given to us, and I do pray that we would do just that. That we wouldn't be given to fables and traditions of men and that which is contrary to your word, but believing in the sufficiency of the word 
and the sufficiency of Christ in our lives and living in us. And may we walk in true knowledge and wisdom. May that be true for us because there's a lot of voices in the church today and there's a lot of belief that we need to add to the word of God or we need to dismiss it or the word of God is not sufficient. The word of God in him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if we can hang on to that and hang on to the word of God and grow in the word that we can be used. And then I want to pray for anyone who is here that you have not come to Christ for salvation. He is your salvation. Come to him. It's not religion that's going to save you. It's Jesus Christ who went to the cross and died for your sins and rose again. And he says, come. And if you believe in your heart the Lord Jesus and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You need to be forgiven. And he's the only one that provided that, make an atonement for your sins and validating by rising from the grave. And you come right now. You repent, turn directions, turn to Christ, and you pray, Jesus, I come to you and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe you died for me on Calvary's cross. Be my Lord and Savior. And I thank you for this new beginning. And this, Lord, bringing me into the family of God and this living hope that I have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.